From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A hearty welcome to those of you listening in on The Conspiracy Show app, the best radio show app anywhere. A shout-out to those listening in on one of our affiliates and the podcasts, of course, at TalkZone.com. Wherever and however you're listening, I thank you for your fine company. A rock investor, R. Gary Patterson, is standing by. Uh, July 3rd is the anniversary uh, of the death of James Douglas Morrison, the most charismatic, mysterious frontman in rock history. Of course, the Doors continue to influence musicians to this very day, a half century after they first appeared on the scene at the uh, Whiskey A Go-Go on the, on the uh, Hollywood Strip. Uh, Gary will attempt to separate fact from fiction uh, surrounding the life and death of Jim Morrison uh, in, in mere moments. Let me remind you uh, that season four of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, uh, airs Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. And seasons one through three are available in the United States on Hulu and Amazon.com. Uh, I mentioned Gary Patterson. He is uh, coming up to Toronto for a special live event Sunday, October the 16th. This is a Strange Planet Productions and Conspiracy Culture presentation. And it's uh, called Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Of course, the title of Gary's book. Again, that's Sunday, October the 16th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, University of Toronto here in, Can- in uh, Toronto. Uh, special guests will be joining us uh, via Skype, including Peggy Sue and the dear lifelong friend of Buddy Holly. And, of course, the inspiration for the song Peggy Sue and Peggy Sue Got Married. And there'll be other uh, special Skype guests as well. So for more information, uh, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca and the events page at conspiracyculture.com. Or you can just call the store, Conspiracy Culture, 416 416-916-916-916-1696. Jim Morrison, the Lizard King, found dead in the bathtub of his Paris apartment by his wife Pamela Corson in July of 1971. His death has always been shrouded in mystery for decades. Researchers, authors, fans have speculated that Morrison may have faked his death to escape fame. He's been spotted around the world over the years. One story goes that he's a horse rancher in the Pacific Northwest. Others have written books suggesting he was murdered or perhaps the victim of a voodoo ritual. Others suggest he died of a drug overdose, but at a club called the Rock and Roll Circus on Paris's famous left bank. And then his body was taken from the washroom stall back to his apartment uh, to avoid bad publicity for the club. So, which is it? Let's discuss the life and death of the great Jim Morrison. Gary Patterson is a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll. The Walrus Was Paul, his first book, detailed the Paul is Dead hoax of the late 1960s, and that book really established Gary's credentials as an authority on the Beatles. His second book, a bestseller from Simon & Schuster, is titled Held Hounds on Their Trail, Tales from the Rock and Roll Graveyard, and then that book was reworked and expanded and released as Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths and Legend, uh, sorry, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends and Curses. He's, of course, a, a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM, and this program, plus my television program, in fact, he appeared on our TV episode about Jim Morrison, which aired, 
I believe, in season three. Gary Patterson, how are you, you old rock and roller, you? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you, Richard? Not bad. I was uh, trying to decide the other day um, whether I'm a, whether I'm a mod or a rocker. And I, I have to say, I think I'm probably more of a mod than a rocker. How about you? I think I'm a mocker. I'm <laughs> Spinal tap, yes. <laughs> I'll be a mocker. I can do both. All right. Uh, all right. Jim Morrison, I mentioned that, you know, so many theories. Uh, one, that he was, that was Jim. He died in a bathtub, accidental overdose. Uh, uh, the other one, of course, that he actually died at the Rock and Roll cir- Circus Club and uh, had some, he got into some bad cocaine or heroin. And um, they took him out of the bathroom stall back to the Paris apartment, put him in the tub. And then the other theory, of course, that he faked his death. Um, and, you know, there's so many interesting clues surrounding uh, that. I mean, he did talk about that um, in the 60s. He talked to his, I, I guess, his, his producer or his manager about, you know, what would happen to business if I were to die. And he talked about sort of reinventing himself. Maybe I'll become kind of a shirt and tie and jacket kind of clean cut guy. Um where does Gary Patterson uh, fall in all of this uh, wonderful debate? Well, I have to tell you, you probably have to go back to why all these clues happened in the first place. And that's because how many people actually saw Jim Morrison's body? Two. And, of course, you know, Mary Ann Faithful was one. Oh. And Pamela Corson. Mary Ann Faithful yeah. actually claimed... In a, in her autobiography, that her boyfriend at the time is the one who sold the heroin to Pamela Corson, and they immediately left. But she claimed that she had seen Jim's body. We know that Pamela Corson saw it. Uh, we know the coroner saw it, and we know that according to the coroner, the funeral homes in Paris were closed, so they brought in a body bag put dry ice in it, and Pamela Corson slept next to his corpse for about two nights. But when the door sent their manager, Bill Siddons, over to Paris to make sure, mm-hmm. all he saw was a simple wooden coffin that already had the lid screwed on. And when they buried Jim at Père Lachaise, Ray Manzarek asked him to make sure, to make sure he saw the body. And when he found out he hadn't, all these rumors started because the Morrison family really wasn't notified until after the funeral. <clears throat> so they were not able to get there. So if you don't have a body, then nobody can actually say he was in that grave. When Pamela Corson was questioned over it, when uh, no one here gets out alive was released, he was, she was asked, was Jim alive? And she said, well, if he were alive, he would call me. Now, wasn't that a crazy answer? It is a very crazy answer. Yeah. And of course, she died a year later. Right, right. Um, John, was it John Densmore who stood on the grave at Père Lachaise when the doors went over there, the surviving members, and said, you know, this is too short. Jim, Jim was around six foot, and the grave, the plot itself is about a few inches short anyway which is kind of interesting. Well, actually, I've stood on that grave, and it's very short. Mm. And I'm a little over 6'2", so uh, if I were to lie, lie on the grave, my head would <laughs> be much further up. So 
the grave does appear to be too small. And when he was buried, the grave was only leased. So I think it was leased for 20 years. Right. So it was actually supposed to be opened in 2001 on July 8th. And the reason why it was to be opened was there's so much graffiti all over the cemetery. And, you know, it really was romantic to walk through Père Lachaise and follow the graffiti to Morrison's grave. Right. I mean, all the luminaries are there. Oscar Wilde. Sure. Um, you know, Chopin. Chopin is there. I mean, this, that's, which begs another question. How does a guy, a foreigner, uh, get into Père Lachaise and, and just like, I mean, there must be a waiting list to get in there, and he dies, and literally overnight he's planted there. I mean, how does that happen? You know what was odd? He had only visited Père Lachaise a couple of days before his death, and how they got him in there was that they introduced him as an American poet. So the committee that allowed him to be buried in the cemetery thought that he would be on the the same stanza with Chopin, which he was, but not a rock star, a poet. And that's how he got there faster is because of those credentials that he was well known as an American poet. So that's how he was buried. Um, I only think maybe eight people were at his funeral. And I can tell you, being a visitor to his grave maybe ten times, He's the only guarded grave in Père Lachaise with uh, at least one policeman, maybe two, and a barrier around his grave. He's the only one. You will never see graffiti that says Fred with an arrow pointing to Chopin, but you will find <laughs> one that says Jim, and sometimes the eye becomes the arrow, and you just follow it. The closer you get, you used to see Doors lyrics written on tombstones. Now, the French hated the idea that these graffiti artists were marking it, so they were going to evict him from the cemetery and probably would have been Jim Morrison's 2001 L.A. tour. <laughs> but the family worked out a deal where they would pay to have the graffiti removed. They also paid to have a security system put in Jim's grave. I think the big thing happened was that when the wall came down, and the Eastern Europeans, for the first time, made their journey to Paris to visit Morrison's grave. It was a very party-like atmosphere with lots of drinking and illegal drugs. And one of the Eastern Europeans drove a car into the cemetery gates, and the French decided they didn't want those types of hooligans mm. in their very classic cemetery. So that was another reason why they wanted Morrison removed. But... He's still there. And Ray Manzarek said that the day they were going to remove the body, that he would be there with Doors fans all over the world saying, open the box, open the box, because he didn't think Morrison was there. Well, yes, he's on record as saying if anyone could have pulled it off, Ray Manzarek, of course, the Doors keyboardist, uh, who could have faked a birth, a death certificate, uh, uh, it would have been, it would have been Jim Morrison. It, now, did not, the rumor has it that Morrison actually visited Père Lachaise several times in the days or weeks leading up to his death. Is that true? It's true, yes. Hmm. Just like his, his, uh, his inspiration, uh, was it the, the French poet, was it Baudelaire? 
Oh, let's see. Who was or, it? Yes, and uh, Rambo. Rambo, right, right. Yeah. And Rambo used to sleep in the in that cemetery apparently. <laughs> well, Rambo is the one who inspired Morrison's taste for the delineation of the senses where he would uh do his death rides in his Ford Mustang and then he would walk on ledges on high-rise hotels in LA. And it was a complete idea of facing and cheating death. He lived in squalor. I mean, he had tons of money but he always stayed in the seedy side of hotels and like Rambeau it was the idea to, to release the spirit of the of the poet which he wanted to do well speaking of, of spirits and we're, we're coming up on a break here we'll, we'll take a time out but of course there is that um, uh, terrific scene from Oliver Stone's uh, movie The Doors and, and people are very divided on whether you know that's a, a great movie or a horrible movie <laughs> uh, but there is that scene where, of course, as a young boy, Jim and his family traveling along this highway in New Mexico, and they witness this horrific car crash, uh, which I believe involved some some uh, Native Americans. And yeah. Jim always believed that a shaman, the spirit of the shaman who was killed in that accident, inhabited his body. Uh, maybe we'll pick up on that point when we come back. Our Gary Patterson. Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, Jim was a very uh, intelligent, bright young man and behaved uh, himself pretty well, really. And uh, he liked to uh, write and uh, draw pictures he was an avid reader he read everything and then he also wrote he would write in a he had a book and he would this was in high school he would learn a new word and then he'd write a whole story around it so his vocabulary was incredible he liked all the classics and uh, read everything he could get his hands on <clears throat> and he was always delighted to go to his grandmother's house because she had a library one time he just got up out of class and told his teacher he was going to have a brain tumor removed. And he just walked out of class to go read. We are back with R. Gary Patterson, the Fox Mulder of Rock, as we commemorate uh, the uh, the anniversary of Jim Morrison's death, the front man of uh, The Doors, a very, very influential uh, band. Um, and we just uh, came out of that break and we heard uh, some clips there from... Jim Morrison's uh, father, Admiral, Admiral George Stephen Morrison, um, who passed away in 2008, and uh, then his sister, Anne Robin uh, Morrison, his, his younger sister, Anne, with some interesting comments. All right, uh, uh, Gary, I, I, we mentioned the, um, the car crash uh, that the Morrison family witnessed on that highway in New Mexico, and Jim believed that the spirit of a shaman that was involved in that crash inhabited his body. Uh, and some... I think this is mentioned in, in Sugarman and Hopkins' book. Um, one of the theories is that that shaman sort of provided the, um, it was Jim's muse, and provided that inspiration for him and helped him write. Uh, and that uh, it's possible that spirit left his body, leaving Jim sort of um, lacking, I guess, in creativity, and his body was totally worn out. When that spirit left him, he just sort of gave up the ghost himself. What do you think of that? I think it's an interesting story. I know that when the Doors performed, Morrison was called the Electric Shaman, 
And he would go into these dance moves that he said was the Indian spirit or spirits that had come into his body. I think that Morrison's rock and roll image as, you know, more like a Lord Byron who had been exiled for his, for his sins with his exhibition in uh, Miami, especially to get him to be a poet and back to France. But I think that there were rumors that when he died, there was some sort of sacrificial attempt to remove his eyes, to release the spirit from inside him. Right. So you hear this. I mean, it, it's a part of the, of the legend of Morrison and his death. For me, I don't know if I really buy into it that much. I know that when Jim was young, when he was in school, he was reading books that were so advanced that his teachers actually went to the Library of Congress to see if the books existed that he did the book reports on. So he was very advanced, and he had an IQ at least of 150. So he was a very bright fellow. So when you talk about creativity and and all that, if there was a spirit inside, then he also had the knowledge and the, the fortitude to become a first-class poet and understand the abstract material he was reading. And in some cases, it may have been Crowley-esque, but he had a—he was a very great reader. What about these theories that um, he wanted to escape fame? He wasn't happy being a rock and roll star. He—he he was a poet, mm-hmm. uh, and that he faked his death. Now, you and I have both talked to uh, to Jim's brother-in-law, Alan Graham, and and mm-hmm. um, Graham said that he saw the some death scene photos. Couldn't really really tell if that was Jim in the bathtub, uh, and there was this this hanger-on part of Morrison's retinue that that uh, sometimes stayed at his apartment, even wore Jim's clothes. He looked kind of like Rasputin, as a lot of young hippies did back then. Uh, and who knows what state Pamela Corson was in when she she was a drug addict when she came in and saw this body in half submerged in the bathtub. And I believe Alan Graham said this individual's name was Dieter or something like that. I think it was Dietmar. It was Dietmar. Uh, yeah, a German uh, follower of Jim Morrison who yeah. resembled him uncannily. And he would even go to bars and, and people would think he was Morrison and he'd let them buy them drinks. He wouldn't sure. disabuse them of that notion. What do you think? Could that have been Dietmar in the bathtub? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, here's the thing that gets me. When Sugarman's book came out, Pamela Corson made all these acclamations about shaving his beard and him getting in the tub and she fixed him something to eat. And, uh, but if you listen to the new material, I really believe that Pamela Corson wasn't there that night. And one thing that Alan also brought up, if you remember, is when Morrison's body was found, his body was lying against the water pipes. The taps, right. Nobody sits mm-hmm. that way in a bathtub. Nobody gets no, no. No. You, you put your Nobody feet to does. that. You put your feet Which to would that. say that perhaps the body was placed there. Mm-hmm. And if it was placed there, it goes back to the electric circus where Morrison's body was found from a drug overdose. And of course, there had to be an arrest if, if it was a drug overdose. So the two men who had sold Morrison the drugs said, no, he's not dead, even though an EMT person uh, actually pronounced him dead in the club 
The two men who provided the drugs carried him back to his apartment, and they put him in the bathtub. So Corson must have come in late that night. The other theory is that Morrison had found this white powdery substance, which he thought was cocaine, and he snorted it, and he died in the bathtub. And there were uh, drops of blood that would appear to be from, you know, snorted heroin, whatever, that they found in the water. Allen's theory is that the body had to be placed there, which would mean that he was dead before he was in the tub. Right. I mean, we know that Jim was a heavy drinker. In fact, sure. from a very your early age, he probably, uh, you know, coming from a military family, they had cocktail hour. Back mm-hmm. then, you know, there wasn't this prohibition against even pregnant women drinking. People just, they didn't know back then in the 40s. And and uh, Alan has surmised that Jim probably suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome. He was born an alcoholic, but he had an, apparently he didn't do drugs. I mean, he had a, an, an incredible aversion to needles, I'm told. He, he did. He did not like drugs. He did not do drugs. So what are the odds that he would suddenly decide to do cocaine? Well, yeah, that's part of the great mistake. I mean, I'd heard that he had used cocaine earlier, but that he was very much against heroin, and that was one of the problems that Pamela Corson had. And if he had found this white powder, she probably kept her mouth shut because she didn't want him yelling at her about using heroin. And he just assumed it was cocaine and took way too much. And that would mean that, of course, he died of a drug overdose. Now, there were witnesses who claimed that they saw Morrison leave Paris on a plane two to three days after his announced death. So, but it's the same way. You know, Richard, when Michael Jackson died, people kept claiming they saw him. Right. You know? Right. So it's part of the whole mystique of someone passing away. I mean, I'm really surprised that no one saw Prince after his death and the idea that he was still alive. <laughs> so there must be an island for dead rock stars who are still alive and Elvis is with them and they're having a great time. But well, there were, the idea. there were a lot of sightings. Um, in fact, uh, the L.A. Free Press, and there were several wire services uh, that reported. Uh, this is in the early, um, about 1973, I think, Morrison appearing on several occasions in San Francisco. Uh, and he was involved with uh, some sort of business and banking transactions with the Bank of America. And right. They, and they even, they even quoted the, um, the employee that handled the transaction. He was a guy by the name of Walt Fleischer, and he confirmed that someone resembling Morrison, using that name, was uh, indeed doing business at the bank. And he did add that he was far from sure it was the uh, actual, you know, real McCoy, uh, but... Because Morrison didn't show him any identification, but this could be that because there was a photo ID already on on file at the bank uh, with the name of James Douglas Morrison. So, what do you what do you make of that whole San Francisco Bank of America story from 1973? I mean, it's a fabulous story, and it would have been at least two years after he died. I think the thing that gets me, if Morrison were still alive, he really loved. He really loved his mother, even though he had told everyone at the label his his family was dead. And the label was very amazed to find his mother and his sister showing up for a concert one night. And, you know, Morrison had to say, well, they're really not dead. But when Clara died, he didn't show. 
when uh, his father died, he didn't show. Of course, there was some animosity there. If you look at the tombstone, there's a Greek phrase that had been placed on the stone itself. And translated, it means true to his own spirit. His father put it on the tombstone. So it probably shows like, well, you know, we're going to make up over this. But, yeah, I mean, Morrison had been cited so many places in the United States. Uh, and actually, you could have a reality television show with Jim Morrison's children, people who claim to be the children of the Lizard King. You don't know how many I've talked to who claim that Jim Morrison was their father. Uh, one who lived in New Orleans when it came out that he was supposedly Morrison's son, there were people on his property and he had to run someone off with a camera. He said, man, I'm just here to take a picture of the lizard prince. <laughs> and I mean, you can imagine it. They're females, they're males. There's one fella who actually performed as Morrison, as Morrison's son. And, uh, actually there were two and one's in prison and he was in a band with, uh, Robbie Krieger's son. Oh, wow. And Interesting. I, and I think he got Robbie's son hooked on heroin too. Oh, dear. So, you know, he was, his name was Cliff Morrison. And I think he had to pay his way into the Whiskey A Go Go to put on a show. You can go look at some YouTube videos and listen to him. To me, I don't think he sounds like Jim Morrison. I really don't think he looks like Jim Morrison, but he's, he's one person who claims to be the son of Jim Morrison. Now, did Morrison fake it? With an IQ of 150, Richard, I'm sure that he was capable of coming up with a way out. And did you ever get a phone call from a mysterious, uh, rancher in the Pacific Northwest claiming to be Jim Morrison? I never got the chance to speak to that individual, but I spoke to the, um, the ranch, the, uh, the promoter who, who claimed that he was living next door to Jim Morrison. And, mm-hmm. um, no, I, and I've seen the, um, you know, the videos of this, this individual. Yep. Uh, and they do kind of an interesting, they superimpose an, uh, an old photo of Jim over this uh, fellow who would be now, what, 72. At the time, I guess he was in his late 60s. And it is interesting. I mean, there is a, there is a remarkable um, resemblance there. He does look like an older version of Jim Morrison. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, who knows? Maybe he's pl- hiding in plain sight. I don't know. I, it's the best place to hide would be in plain sight. The promoter that you talked to, I think his first name was George. Yeah. Uh, he was trying to raise money to make a movie and he was trying to sell the rancher who he claimed to be Morrison as Jim Morrison to bring in the money to make this film that had nothing to do with Jim Morrison is actually the story of the promoter's life. Yeah. I bet you I had seven phone calls from them and, uh, you know, trying to get me to say, yes, this is Jim Morrison. You know, I thought it would be kind of interesting to have Alan Graham come up. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Where were you when you found out that he died? What was that like? Was that the was that an expected thing? Was it a horrible shock? What I mean, well... No, it wasn't expected. I thought, oh, my God, he's he's going to be an Irish drunk and live to 80. Ray and I and Robbie were at our rehearsal room and on a break. And uh, 
you know, there had been some McCartney death rumors a few weeks before, and our manager told us, and we kind of... And he just said, I'm going to get on a plane right now and go find out. Well, that was a weekend, and he went and called and said, Jim's dead, and and he didn't see him. It was a closed casket, hence the rumors, you know. And Jim was a crazy guy who no one I've ever met would be more capable of faking their death than him. But he also, I don't want to discount, he I watched him turn into an alcoholic with a disease. We didn't have substance abuse clinics, so I didn't really, I knew there was an elephant in the room, but I couldn't define it. He's dead. Sorry. I'm sorry. And we are back with R. Gary Patterson. The book is Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll uh, Legends, uh, sorry, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And just a reminder, uh, Gary will be uh, coming up here for a special live event October the 16th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, University of Toronto. Uh, and we'll have some special Skype uh, guests, including Peggy Sugarin, the... Uh, the dear friend of Buddy Holly. So that is going to be a remarkable evening, and uh, um, uh, Gary will be sharing, no doubt, some uh, some more inside information on Jim Morrison and and uh, and much more. Um, we were talking about uh, Jim Morrison, supposedly alive and well, living somewhere. Uh, back in the early nineties, uh, there was supposedly a recording uh, made, um, and it was um, released from the Zeppelin group, which was. Uh, interesting because Morrison at one time tried to secure the rights to the name uh, Zeppelin Music Publishing or something. This is before, I guess, Led Zeppelin really um, came to the fore. But um, so this this song comes out, and um, um, what was it called? The Phantom. The um, it was called Phantom or something. Yeah. And um, it was. It sounded a lot like Jim Morrison. What can you tell me about that recording from 1992? I think that you can go through and you can find recordings that have have become the, the stuff of urban legend. I mean, it does sound like Morrison. I've heard. Have you heard it? I have. I have. And what do you think? you think it sounds like Jim? Well, you know, it's like all those Elvis recordings mm-hmm. out there. There's a lot of people that do very credible uh, Elvis impersonations. Exactly. That's that was the point I was getting to, and even the idea that the Beatles had actually gotten back together in Hollywood somewhere around oh, let's see, two years after the breakup, let's say around '72, and had actually put out an album, and there was a stir when the master tapes were going to be auctioned off, and it had initials like GM and GE. Of course, GM, George Martin, GE, Jeff Emmerich, and the songs on it were like People of the Third World was one of the songs. And the person who had the tape tried to sell it, auction it off for over $150,000. And when it was played, it was only a blank studio tape. And someone had put all these names on it. I mean, I've heard recordings that sound exactly like artists who passed away, like you saying, with Elvis Presley. Ronnie McDowell in Nashville is probably the greatest Elvis Presley sound-alike voice. So when I hear something like that, it's got to be more than just a recording. 
And you got to have providence with it. You know, who played on the session, who arranged it, and have people come forward and do that. Right. They so, it was referred to as the the credits were uh, drummer X, bass player Y. <laughs> uh, but um, I think yeah. then the rumor came out that it was actually Iggy Pop that was doing the vocals. I think. Now, I've heard that Iggy Pop did do the vocals, and when he started, he he just did a really great. Jim Morrison sound, and when he performed, sometimes he would go into that. So I have heard that it was Iggy Pop. And matter of fact, I think Iggy Pop actually admitted doing. Oh, it. he did, did he? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that blows. So that I think we set. just solved the mystery right there. <laughs> well, there are other mysteries uh, to many, solve. Many, many more. Uh, we will do that when we come back. Our Gary Patterson, take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses, right here on the Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the anniversary of the Lizard King's death. Or is Mojo rising? We'll find out. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Oh, I think it's great. I think the pilgrimages to Jim Morrison's grave are uh, are absolutely wonderful. Uh, um... You know, it's Jim Morrison, the living artist. You know, he's not dead. He's in the air. He's in the ether. You know, people visit his grave to pay homage to him, to leave a flower, to uh, leave a tape. When you go to Jim Morrison's grave, respect the other people around. Go crazy on Jim Morrison's grave. That's okay. You have my permission. And you have Jim's permission. Enough said. Welcome back. Uh, and that was um, a clip we just played from uh, Ray Manzarek, the late Ray Manzarek, who we lost a couple of years ago. Of course, the um, the great keyboardist. And it was that chance encounter on a beach in Venice, California, uh, both uh, Morrison and Manzarek attending UCLA. And um, that the collaboration was born. And then they bring in this... Uh, sort of a flamenco guitarist, Robbie Krieger, and um, Densmore, who played in a marching band. I think it was that's a kind of a, it was an odd assortment, wasn't it? You had you had um, Ray Manzarek, who was, I mean, a lot of his music seemed to be inspired by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill, and then um, you had the poet Morrison, and then you had um, uh, Krieger, as I mentioned, I, I believe was a flamenco guitarist, and Densmore, Densmore was a jazz drummer essentially, and he played in a marching band. What I mean. What a strange cadre of uh, a motley crew to come together, and 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 uh, but it worked, didn't it? It did work. And the thing that Jim Morrison loved about Robbie Krieger was that Robbie could play slide guitar. And if you listen to a lot of the door songs, you hear the slide guitar part. Mm. But, but Morrison also loved Texas blues. So on the uh, L.A. Lady album, he LA brought Woman, in. Right a blues player whose name was Mark Benno to actually play guitar with Robbie on it. So they weren't afraid of bringing people in the studio to embellish their sound. And no bass player. So I guess Manzarek played sort of the bass uh, notes with his, what his left hand on the keyboard. Actually, they had bass players in the studio. Oh, they did. They just, yeah, they never credited them. And when they played live, Manzarek played bass with his left hand. You're right. Um, so I want to go back to the, uh, the, the, the faked death rumors. And um, Morrison had numerous conversations with, with um, managers and that about, you know, radically changing careers, reappearing as a suited and necktied uh, businessman, mm-hmm. um, 
he told somebody or he asked somebody at the I guess at the I don't know if it was Jack Holtzman or or somebody he said what would happen if he were to suddenly die how might it affect business and record sales and the press and would people believe it uh I mean it sounds like he was really giving some thought to this Well you know what Jimi Hendrix said before he died he said it's funny how people love the dead once you're dead you're made for life and if you'll sit there and you go all the way back who do you think the very first rock tragedy was? The very first rock tragedy? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. Well, I'm going to tell you. I just brought it up because a lot of people think Buddy Holly and the plane crash, but Johnny Ace. Oh, that's right. The late, great Johnny Ace, a great Paul Simon tune. Mm-hmm. And what did Johnny Ace teach the record industry? That you make millions of dollars if your artist is dead. Because people have the idea of, you know, nostalgia. They see a greatest hits album, the artist dies, they rush right out and buy it. So what was odd to me with that whole theory about how people love, love the dead and make money off their, off their names on the recordings, I had a friend who used to work for a very major record label across the United States, which you don't see anymore. But he told me that it was odd that three days before John Lennon was murdered, all of John Lennon's records appeared in their shops to put on the shelves. Hmm. And when Lennon was killed, that every one of those albums and CDs and tapes sold completely out. And he was saying, you know, do you think the record company knew something about that? Now, for me, and I mean, I love conspiracy, and Richard, I know you do too, Mm -hmm. just the idea that having product on hand a few days before a rock star dies, you can imagine how much money they're going to make. And Johnny Ace, who actually had two songs, you know, that you could think of that really charted, and of course he used the name Johnny Ace because his father was a minister, and he didn't want his son playing secular music, just like Sam Cooke and the others, that when he died, the label made so much money. So what Morrison's saying is once you're dead, it's good for record sales. Right, right. So so if he faked his death, there would be lots more to be made on the Doors catalog, and he would have tons of money. But, you know, the thing that makes me really think about this, who collected the royalties after after Jim died? It was Pamela Corson. And Pamela Corson had all the royalties, and then she died a year later. And then both families, the Morrison family and the Corson family, received all the royalties. So all of Jim's royalties went to these two families. Now, if you had some creative accounting, you could have some some more money go somewhere. Or if the Morrison family knew that Jim was alive and they were funneling money to him, but knowing someone in the Morrison family who is over that, I can tell you that that's not true. So... Where did he get the money? How did he keep going? You know, he could set up some false companies, I know, and have a percentage of his royalties delivered there. But the other doors would be receiving it. And uh, so the the monetarily thing is something you have to look at and explore. But it would be a good it'd be a good adventure to find out where the money went. Right. Well, there was another um, I mean, if, if he was sincere about wanting to totally drop out and reinvent himself and come back as a businessman maybe he just said okay the the heck with the royalties i don't need them Mm -hmm. i'm going to start out fresh but the other interesting thing was again going back to these conversations he had 
with um, managers and so forth, and I, I, I'm not sure who this was. It was a confidant, but they used to apparently have lengthy conversations about how the disciples, you know, after the crucifixion went in and stole Jesus' body and, and uh, you know, to create this um, hoax, and they called it the Great Easter Heist and all that. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you put all these things together, and it is... It is interesting. I know everybody thinks every rock star who's ever died, you know, faked their death. But, (laughs) um, I mean, it has been done. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the um, uh, the great uh, Machiavelli. Machiavelli uh, uh, faked his death. And um, um, Tupac Shakur used to uh, quote Machiavelli all the time and talk about Machiavelli. And that's why people think Tupac could have pulled it off as well. But uh, I don't know. It's it's great (laughs) fodder for talk shows like this, though, isn't it? Well, actually, you know, if you take a look at Tupac, just spell his name backwards, and it spells kaput. So <laughs> that answers that question. That is dark. <laughs> I uh, know. Uh, uh, Mojo Sorry. Rising. Mojo Rising is an anagram as well, so it contains Jim Morrison's name, which is kind of interesting because the, the, the term mojo is often used in voodoo. Mm-hmm. And now, was Morrison a practitioner? He, I mean, he certainly seemed interested in voodoo philosophy, and I think some of his songs incorporate that. What do you think? Well, I think he was into the occult as far as studying it. I don't know if he was the occult as far as Crowley goes. I think that he did have something that tied him into voodoo, and, and of course, he had a Wiccan hand fest with uh, Patricia Keneally, who was who claimed to be his wife, or the Lizard Queen. And you know, you can look at her story. And, of course, it was pretty well showed in uh, the movie The Doors, you know, about his relationship with her. Right. She was a and, witch initiate, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they drank, supposedly they drank blood together. They did. And uh, so it just shows that he had an interest. But, you know, no one opened the coffin, and no one has seen if a body is there. And he could have dropped out completely, but... I think it would be awful hard for him to leave, you know, Pam, because he always kept her with him. And I know she was dead within a year, but for her to say if he was alive, he would have called me. That's a very strange statement to make, and no one here gets that alive. And I'm just thinking that he could probably cut off his whole family. I just don't know if he could cut out her. Right. Right. Well, it's possible he did show up to the funeral, uh, Claire's funeral, in disguise. Um, it could be. I remember Alan Graham uh, telling the story of he was putting on some sort of a musical uh, about um, the life of Jim Morrison. I think he was down there in, in San Diego mm-hmm. or Corona or wherever and um, thought that he caught a glimpse of uh, his brother-in-law um, sort of hanging about, I guess, in the theater. Just got a, a fleeting glimpse, and he walked by, and he, th- and he thought, I wonder, that could that be? <laughs> so yeah. I think even Alan holds out the poss- a remote Alan, possibility. He does. Alan does. I mean, he he doesn't close the door. The f- well, that was a pun, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know, Ray Manzarek had gone on record many times doubting that Jim was buried at Pere Lachaise. So you can imagine how shocked I was. On coast to coast, when I brought up the question, and Ray says, "Oh no, he's dead. He's buried there," and it just shocked me because he had never said that before. Hmm. I yeah. mean, my favorite story that Manzarek told was the idea that 
someone asking for $1,500. They said they found Jim in the outback in Australia. He had a broken leg. If uh, Ray would send him $1,500, he would set his leg and get him home on an airliner for $1,500. <laughs> so you can imagine how many people have claimed to the surviving doors that they know where Jim is. What's the, uh, we just have a couple minutes left, the status of, the, we have the two surviving members now, John Densmore and Robbie Krieger, of course, and when Krieger and um, uh, Manzarek were performing together as the doors, John Densmore sued. Um, then they changed their name to Riders on the Storm and so forth, but there was a lot of acrimony there. Are, 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 now that Manzarek has passed away, uh, are, are Krieger and, and Densmore, are they are they okay again? Are they together? Or? They're not together. I haven't talked to Robbie in a while. I should call him and uh, see what he has to say. But I know that the last time I talked to him, he couldn't even mention the name Doors because they had some sort of legal injunction against it. So I would say that hopefully they're the last two survivors that they have some goodwill as long as Robbie doesn't perform under the doors. I think he just performs under his own name now. But uh, Robbie Krieger is a very interesting person. And I know that John Dinsmore and Jim really didn't get along in the doors. I think that Jim really, well, not, well Dinsmore actually resented Jim Morrison. So now it seems like Dinsmore tries to be Jim's champion about I don't want to put his music out. I don't want to do this. And, you know, it seems rather odd, but I hope that, you know, they can get together and work out their differences because life's too short. And you've got two members of probably one of the greatest theatrical bands. And as far as the sound goes, no one could actually duplicate that. No, it would be but great they, to hear them together again. It would be. It would be. So right. hopefully there will be. Gary, thank you so much for this. Always glad to do it. Gary Patterson, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, coming to Toronto October the 16th. Strange Planet live events page, strangeplanet.ca for more info. All right, that's it for me back next week. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Albert. Thank you, Jamie. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>